please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. If you turn to Luke chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 26. This is going to be a great day in the life of our church. You want to come back next week as well. Next Sunday we'll be installing our elders. Uh, some elders from Bethany Baptist Church will be here, uh, the church that we're a part of right now and, and spiritually and, and legally and those elders will be laying hands and on our elders and, and praying for them and so it's going to be a, a special service uh, next week as the men that you've appointed today are going to be officially installed in their office uh, next Sunday so I encourage you to, to come back out for our, our first Sunday as a, uh, a church with its own elders next next Sunday. Well, Luke chapter 5 uh, verses 17 through 26 if you'd stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. Luke writes, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. May God instruct us through the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us that addresses us in our, our fallen condition. And we pray that our hearts would be receptive to your word, that you would teach us, that we would be responsive to you. We, we, we thank you for this church, and I thank you for the meeting we've already had this morning, just the the joy that it is to see your, your people excited about you, to see you as the center of all things in the universe and in this church. And uh, Father, uh, we beseech, beseech you that you would be gracious on us even still. We approach you uh, as beggars, grateful for the grace you've bestowed and eager for more of your grace because we love you. Open your word to us this morning. We pray in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen. Last week, as we were in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 5, I told you that we were beginning a series of stories that deal with a common theme. And that theme is that you and I are sinners. We are in need of someone to save us from our sins. And Jesus Christ has both the authority and the ability to forgive sins. That's the, the great theme that we're studying last week and this week and in a few weeks as we continue in the gospel of luke uh, we are sinners in need of a savior 
Jesus Christ is that Savior and has the ability to rescue us from our sins. And last week, we kind of looked at the first part of that statement. We saw how you and I are sinners. We looked at the nature of sin, its pervasiveness, our our total corruption, radical corruption. And we saw ways in which we are to approach God rightly as sinners. That was last week. This week, we're looking more at this this second part of the phrase, the second part of the theme, that Jesus Christ is a great Savior with the ability and the authority to forgive sins. On Sunday evenings, we've been doing this elective series. Uh, Kent Coder is doing one at Bethany Baptist Church. I encourage you to go to that. Mine's closer, uh, and we're watching a movie tonight, parts of it. Sorry, Kent, I couldn't resist there. Uh, We've been studying the Reformation, and as we've been looking at the Reformation, I I was thinking about this week, and I I was reminded of a story we looked at several months ago as we talked about Martin Luther. In the spring of 1517, a guy named John Tetzel arrives in Uterberg, near Wittenberg, where Martin Luther is is serving as a teacher. And uh, this guy, Tetzel, arrives in the town square of Uterberg and in the marketplace, and he begins to, to proclaim the, the sell of indulgences. Indulgences were slips of, of paper that a person could purchase. And as a person could, could purchase these, these slips of paper, it would supposedly grant forgiveness of sins, release from purgatory. And Tetzel was a very effective salesman. And, and people would come and he would offer them these, this chance to buy this slip of paper that could release themselves or loved ones from purgatory. And he had that phrase, you've perhaps heard it before, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That's Tetzel. He's in Uterberg preaching that message. Martin Luther, a short distance away in Wittenberg, hears about this, this proclamation, this preaching of indulgences, and he's rightly infuriated by that message. And Luther comes up with these 95 theses and 95 arguments for why these these cells of indulgences is so ridiculous. For example, uh, he says that that one of his theses says, look, that these papal pardons in and of themselves can't remove the the very tiniest of sins. He says if it was true, another one of his arguments is, look, if it's true that the Pope himself has the ability to forgive sins, then why wouldn't he just forgive everyone's sins? Why is he asking for money to build this, this, this uh, to, to rebuild this, this uh, basilica whenever he has all this money at his disposal? If, if it was true that, that he could forgive sins, why not just forgive everyone's sins? And then one of his arguments, and I believe this was the crucial argument, he says this. This was his sixth of his 95 theses. He says, the Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring that it has been remitted by Christ and by assenting to God's remission. See his point? The Pope himself has no ability in and of himself to forgive any sins. The ability to forgive sins is unique to God. It is his purview alone. God is the one who forgives sins. And Luther says what the Pope can do is recognize what God has already done in his son Jesus Christ. The ability to forgive sins is God's alone. That's Martin Luther's point, and he was absolutely correct. It was a point that he arrived at, an understanding that he had arrived at through some very difficult times. Luther had desperately sought God's forgiveness 
through the means that the medieval Catholic church told him that you could receive God's forgiveness. He had denied himself sleep. He had, he had done terrible things to his body. He had fasted. He had done all the sacraments, everything that he could do in order to, re, to achieve God's forgiveness on the basis that the, the Catholic church told him that he could receive God's forgiveness. He had done. He had done it all. And he came to Romans chapter 1 one day where it talks about righteousness from God. And he saw that phrase, from God, and recognized that the forgiveness that he so desperately needed could only be granted by God, by a gracious God, by God in his grace. And Luther clung to that truth. And as these indulgences were preached, he said, this is a ridiculous idea. Only God can forgive sins. That's the message that we're looking at this morning in Luke chapter 5. Only God can forgive sins. And there are many ways that people will object to this idea that, that God and Jesus Christ have the ability to forgive sins. Some people will say, well, well perhaps uh, sin isn't real or, or Jesus uh, doesn't have real authority. Uh, some people will say, okay, well, maybe sin is real, but, but there are many different ways in which a person could achieve forgiveness and, and deal with their sin problem. And other, still others would say, okay, maybe Jesus has a unique ability, but surely his authority isn't absolute. Maybe some of you are struggling with that this morning as well. You think about the sin that exists in your life, and you think about your need to approach Jesus Christ for forgiveness, and it's hard to get through your, your mind as you think about God and his grace. It's hard to grasp this idea that there's nothing that you could approach God with in order to find favor with him. You think, well, surely there's, there's something. Surely God offers his forgiveness, but there's something that, that I do in this process as well, and it, it's hard to grasp the idea that it's God alone who forgives sins. And that forgiveness means that God is granting you not something you've earned or deserved, but, but something you haven't earned or deserved. And maybe there's also some people here this morning who, as they contemplate the sin that's in their life. It's hard to believe that God's forgiveness can be absolute. And maybe there are some people in here as they, you think about the things that you've done in your life. You can understand God forgiving most of it, but then you think about that one specific sin. And it's hard to imagine that God could forgive that sin as well. And maybe it's something that's taken place in your marriage. Or maybe it's something that took place many years ago in a relationship with a parent or a sibling or a child. Maybe it's something that, that, that only you and God know about. And as you think about that area of your life, it's very difficult to think about the fact that God's forgiveness could be complete. Here's what I want you to understand as you think about the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Luke is telling us. Jesus Christ has, Jesus Christ has total, complete, full authority to forgive sins, and he will do so fully, completely, and absolutely. That's Jesus Christ's authority over sin. Let's look at the story together. It begins in verse 17 of Luke chapter 5, it says on one of those days, verse 17 Luke chapter 5, on one of those days as he was teaching 
We also read the story in, in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 2 to kind of get a, a more full understanding of what happens in this passage. What's happening is Jesus, as is his custom, is, is there in Capernaum, and he begins to teach. He's uh, in a house, and as he sits down to teach in this house, kind of get a mental picture of the, of the house with me. Based on what we know from these, these houses that existed in Capernaum this time, most likely this was not a very huge house. It's not, don't think of a church as you think of this house. He's in this house that could perhaps hold at most 50 people. Jesus comes into this house, and he, and he sits down, and as he sits down, he's in this room, and the ceilings of this room are probably about six or seven feet high. Not, not massive, right? He sits down, and Luke tells us that there are several groups there that are with Jesus. The first group that Luke introduces us to is this, these guys, these Pharisees, and these teachers of the law. Luke says that they came from various places. They came from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now, let me kind of pause the story here for just a second and think about these, these Pharisees for a moment. We're going to encounter several religious groups in the Gospels. There's about five major religious groups in the first century in which Jesus is ministering. Kind of, if you think about the most liberal group, it's a group called the Herodians. The Herodians were like politicians. They were the people that were kind of in with Rome. And they were kind of Jews in name only. They were culturally part of, more part of the, the, the Roman culture. And they were kind of like our, many of our politicians today, okay? They, they will say, the right, say some of the right things, but really the, the faith wasn't real with them. Slightly less liberal, but still pretty liberal, you had a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in things like the resurrection. They didn't have a very solid understanding of Scripture. Much more liberal. That's the Sadducees. Then, uh, slightly or more conservative, you have this group called the Pharisees. And we'll talk more about them in just a moment. And then kind of on the, you know, the, the right wing of religious, uh, religions of the day, religious groups of Judaism of the, of the day, you have the Zealots. Now, the Zealots are kind of like... Um, well, they're kind of like the tea partiers of the day, okay? Uh, they're kind of these guys, look, we don't want to pay taxes to Rome. We want to oh, overthrow the Roman rule. We want to get rid of these guys, okay? That's kind of the, the zealots, all right? Then you also have a fifth group that's kind of hard to, to, to uh, pigeonhole. That's the, um, the, the Essenes, kind of this more monastic movement. So those are kind of some of the religious groups that exist in Jesus' day. Let's talk a little bit more about these Pharisees that are sitting there listening to Jesus. The Pharisees develop in between the book of Malachi that ends the Old Testament and the book of Matthew that begins the New Testament. The Pharisees were a group of people who were concerned that the Jews were becoming more and more Hellenized. They were becoming more part of the, the Greek culture and then the Roman culture. And they have a desire to keep the people of God the people of God. They're a people that are a people of the book. They want to understand God's law and, and proclaim it to other people. The Sadducees, remember they're a little bit more liberal, they kind of have control of the temple. The Pharisees kind of dominate the synagogues, the, the local congregations of people. They're the people who, who train these scribes to, to know the law and to be able to understand it. The Pharisees become very concerned with preserving righteousness in the people of God. 
They look at God's word and they say, okay, this is what God's word says and we want to preserve that teaching. We want people to understand that teaching. We want people to remain righteous and, and separated from this, this, these uh, Gentile cultures. And so what they do is they begin to uh, erect walls around God's law. So you have God's law and they say, look, we want people to keep God's law, and if they start doing this over here, then they might start violating God's law, and so they, they make these commandments as well. And then they're concerned about further violations, and so they draw additional walls, construct and erect different walls and additional rules and regulations. And by, by Jesus' time, there are some Pharisees who are very passionate about God and, and his things, and we see some of those Pharisees, but by and large, the group that is addressed by Jesus who the gospel writers identify as Pharisees, are people who had become so passionate about their own interpretation of God's law and their additional rules and regulations that they had forgot the God that they were supposed to be passionate about. Something very interesting about Jesus, remember he's in this room right now and he's, he's teaching and there's Pharisees and these scribes that are there seated and, and listening to him. Something kind of interesting is most likely the Pharisees would not have disagreed with Jesus very often in the things that he taught. As you look at Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees as they talk about doctrinal matters, I can't think of very often that they disagreed. Now, sometimes they'll try to trap Jesus in some interpretations, but remember whenever the, the, the lawyer comes to Jesus and he talks about what's the greatest commandment, he and Jesus are in agreement about what the greatest commandments are. Jesus will agree with more conservative, pharisaical uh, interpretations of, of divorce and remarriage and things like that. Jesus doctrinally agrees a lot with these Pharisees. The problem becomes when they begin to apply God's word, right? And these Pharisees have become so immersed and engrossed in their own interpretations and their own laws and rules and regulations, they had forgotten that their passion was supposed to be about God. Okay, we're back in the room. Jesus is seated. And the Pharisees, interestingly enough, are, are seated as well. They're seated. They're doing nothing. They're prepared to judge Jesus. Luke introduces us to another group of individuals, doesn't he, as we go on in the text. It says, verse 18, Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And from Matthew's account, or Mark's, we know that there are four guys, and they're, they're bringing their, their friend. And from these different gospel accounts, we gain a, a great insight into these four guys that are coming to Jesus with, their, their, uh, th with this man on his mat. We first see that these guys are very faithful friends. We don't know how they're related to this guy who's paralyzed, but, but they, or how they know him and how they're his friend. But for some reason, they're his friends. They're faithful friends. They're willing to bring him to Jesus. We also see that these friends are believing friends. They believe that Jesus has the ability to help this friend of theirs who's on the mat. We also see that these guys are persistent friends. They come with their friend on the mat, and they approach the house, and they see that there is no way that they're going to get into this home. They begin to approach the home, and perhaps there's even some people spilling out on the sides. They've wondered, they've had a hard time finding Jesus. In the text, it says that word goes out that he's there, and I think it's in Matthew chapter 9 that mentions that. So they hear that Jesus is here, and so they, they go to this, this house, they see the crowds, and they kind of fall back a little bit, regroup. Some people 
would see a house full of individuals and give up. Okay, well, I guess, I guess we can't get in to see Jesus. These guys look at it another way. Aha, we got him cornered. There's no way Jesus is getting out of that building. I, I wonder kind of some of the conversation that took place among these guys as they thought about how to access Jesus. I, I wonder if there's other plans they came up with because the plan they end up with seems a little bold. One brainiac in the group says, guys, let's tear this guy's roof off and access Jesus. And the other guys agree with him. Sounds like a good plan. Why would they do that? They would do that because they believe that Jesus has the ability to help their friend. These guys are persistent people of faith. This morning, in our church, we just selected, uh, we, we elected uh, some elders, we dealt with our constitution and bylaws. We also selected a group of deacons. The deacons that you just selected this morning are get-it-done type of guys. They remind me of these four friends. These four friends see an opportunity to help their friend, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it done. One guy says, let's go dig a hole in the roof. The other guys think that sounds like a good idea. Now, these roofs, what they're made of is you, you have these, these uh, the, the walls were made of stone or clay or something. And then you have wooden beams that kind of go across the walls. Then going the opposite way, there's some reeds and then some clay on top of that. These, and they, this, these roofs kind of form sometimes a, a second story. People could go and could, could, could fellowship on the top of these, these roofs as well. Uh, the guys go, and they begin to, to dig a hole in this, in this roof. Now, Let's leave them on the roof for just a moment and think about this. What motivates a person to go to such lengths to help their friend? Uh, let me tell you this right now. Based on the guys we just selected as deacons, I have no doubt that they would tear a hole in my roof and your roof if it was part of God's plan to get ministry done. Your roof would not be safe. It would have a hole in it. Now, they, the good thing is these guys would fix it later. Uh, but they're, they're get-it-done type of guys, and so are these friends that help this paralytic. What causes them to, to do that? I, I believe it's because they have faith that Jesus is who they think he is, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. Let me read a quote from J.C. Ryle that I think should be convicting. J.C. Ryle says, Notice here in this story what pains men will take about an object when they are in earnest. That is, as they see Jesus, they're earnest about their desire to get their friend to Jesus. Uh, J.C. Ryle goes on, he says, Why is it that so many people take no pains in religion? How is it that they can never find time for praying, Bible reading, and hearing the gospel? What is the secret of their continual string of excuses for neglecting means of grace? How is it that the very same men who are full of zeal about money, business, pleasure, or politics will, make, will take no trouble about their souls? The answer to these questions is short and simple. Listen to this. These men are not in earnest about salvation. They have no sense of spiritual disease. They have no consciousness of requiring a spiritual physician. They do not feel that their souls are in danger of dying eternally. They see no use in, in taking trouble about religion. In darkness like this, thousands live and die. Happy indeed 
Happy indeed are they who have found out their peril and count all things loss if they may only win Christ and be found in him. There's two groups in front of us as Jesus teaches. One group is seated. They're the Pharisees. They've got some good doctrine, but some terrible application. Complete heart failure. Lack of understanding that the Messiah is seated right in front of them, teaching the word of God. You have another group. A group of four friends who are faithful friends, believing friends, and that belief causes them to be persistent. Their faith is not a dead faith. It is a vibrant, lively faith that causes them to tear a hole in some guy's roof. Let's go back to the story. Verse 19 says they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed. And you can just imagine the scene there. Imagine you're the guy whose house that is and you start feeling some kind of debris start to come down and you look up and there's a hole in your roof that didn't used to be there. And Jesus uh, sees this, this taking place and as these men quickly uh, clear away the debris and there's this hole. This man is, is lowered down in front of Jesus. Jesus continues teaching. And then verse 20 says this, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. I wonder how the guys who just lowered their friend down into this hole in front of Jesus felt. I wonder if that is exactly what they were going for here. I wonder if they thought, okay, that's, that's nice, Jesus. Now get up and walk. Tell them, get up and walk. That's, the, that's your line, Jesus. Take up your mat. That's not what Jesus begins with. Now, you and I know theologically, okay, the biggest need that we all have is sin, right? We all agree with that, at least in theory. But is that really, at our hearts, what we're most concerned with? As we think about our lives, is the thing that we're most concerned with our failure to be righteous and right before God, or is the biggest concern in our life right now financial or some sort of emotional need or or some sort of physical need? Jesus rightly understands the greatest need that this man has is spiritual. And let me suggest to you, the text doesn't say this explicitly, but based on what he says in Matthew chapter 9 and what he says here in Luke chapter 5, I wonder if the man who's paralyzed understands that that's his greatest need as well. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus' first words to him are, are, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. And perhaps this man has been paralyzed for years and he wonders, what have I done to cause me to be paralyzed? And he thinks about the condition of his heart and he recognizes that there's something far more wrong with him than not being able to move around. He recognizes and agonizes and wonders, is this partly due to my sin that I find myself in this condition? And let me suggest to you, Jesus says it's, Uh, sometimes as he heals people look it wasn't sin that was a direct cause of this but we know that at the root of all that goes wrong in our lives is sin right sin is the the root of all physical problems sin in the world is the result of all physical problems that exist this man as he lays before jesus perhaps 
for years has been struggling with guilt and just the the utter uh, heaviness of his sin upon his life. And perhaps, the text doesn't say this, but perhaps of greater concern for him as well is not just the physical relief from being paralyzed. And so Jesus' words are of immense comfort to this man as he lays there paralyzed. Jesus says, man, man is not like, hey, it's not a uh, derogatory term. It's like brother, friend. It's, It's a term of comfort. You and I are not at odds with one another. And maybe the paralyzed man is thinking that as well as he lays there. Look, Jesus is this great teacher, and and I'm this this sinner. Is he even going to want to talk to me? Jesus says, man, friend, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Pharisees, good theology, pathetic application. Look at what they do. The Pharisees and scribes began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now understand this. The Pharisees are right in their theology in one sense. They are absolutely right that it is only God who can forgive sins. The Pharisees had read texts, a text like Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Deuteronomy 9, 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. They knew Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. We we looked at verse 3 last week. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Verse 4 says this. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say? I have made my heart clean. I am pure for sin. The answer, no one. No one can tell God that my heart is pure. I'm cleansed from sin and of themselves. Micah 7, 18 through 19. Micah 17, or 7, 18 through 19. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Isaiah 38, 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. The Pharisees, as they see this, this man, low, remember it's a seven or eight foot ceiling. Sometimes in these pictures, it's like the, the paralyzed man is in danger of dying because these guys are lowering him so, so far down. He's lowered down before Jesus. There's debris all over the place. Jesus and these Pharisees may be covered in this, this clay substance. And Jesus looks upon this paralyzed man. He says, brother, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees look and say, he's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins, and they're half right. Only God can truly forgive sins. Listen to what Jesus, how Jesus responds. He knows the, the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 22, he perceives what they're thinking in their heads. And he answers, 
Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or, or, to, or to say, rise and walk? The idea is, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven you, harder to do it, harder to say, rise up and walk, and actually demonstrate that for, for most people. Then he says in verse 24, but so that you can know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he turns to the man who's paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Immediately he rose up before them, he picked up what he'd been lying on, and he goes home. Glorifying God. Several responses here to Jesus' miracle. One, the man. He's thrilled. He responds exactly the way a person who's been healed should respond, glorifying God. The other response is the response of everyone around. Amazement sees them all, and they glorified God, and, and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. What group does Luke not really explicitly mention? It's the Pharisees. As the stories in Luke go on, we're going to see that these Pharisees failed to recognize the authority of Jesus. Jesus has just given them this amazing demonstration of his power, his authority, and they miss it, they blow it, they fail to receive the Messiah. I want us to think through two applications this morning. Two points of application from the story. The, the first application is, is this, and I think this gets at the main heart of the story. Uh, beware of challenging Christ's authority in your heart. Be very careful about challenging the authority of Jesus Christ, even in your heart, even unconsciously. First thing I think it's important for us to remember is that Jesus' authority is real. Jesus' authority is real is the, is the, the first thing to remember here. Uh, sometimes there's a denial of the existence, uh, we think of more liberal churches perhaps, there's a denial of even the existence of sin. Sin is some sort of social construct. There, there is no such thing as sin. I, I like to tell those people, hey, come over to my house for half an hour. We will disprove that notion very, very quickly. I like to think those people are, are people who don't have children or children who have never had parents, right? Uh, Jesus' authority over sin is, is real. Sin is a, a real thing that, that describes perfectly our condition. I think one of the most powerful apologetics for the truth of Scripture is how Scripture describes sin. I have up here with me a book entitled The Chicago Manual of Style. Those of you who have been in, in seminary or in, in college classes in which, we, which you had to write term papers and things like that, high school papers, uh, you may have encountered this book. It is 956 pages of pure torture. I often uh, turn to it for guidance and help, and I can assure you it is not very helpful. It does not encompass every situation in which it exists, even in writing a paper. 956 pages, and it seems like I constantly am running into situations that this book doesn't cover. The seminary that I attend as well, attended as well uh, understood th this problem. And so it said, uh, this is your, your first resource to turn to, and now we're going to give you 150 more pages of pure joy and torture. This is the seminary's manual of style, third edition, and it goes through page after page describing other ways in which you can reference things and write papers, and this 
document is often lacking. I often come up with situations, and I don't think that I'm that special in this, where uh, there's a source that I need to document that's never been described before. Maybe I should use better sources. I don't know. I've never had that problem with God's Word. The amazing thing about God's Word is it describes my sinful condition perfectly. There's never been a circumstance in my life or in the life of anyone who's ever come to me to to talk with me about things that are going on in their life where we couldn't find the answer in God's Word. God's Word is this amazing tool that can discern the thoughts and distinctions of the human soul. Uh, For example, as we we come to God's word and we think about our our sinful condition, God's word tells us, look, sin is going to be deceptive. Hebrews 3.13 says, uh, don't let your heart be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Scripture recognizes that a person who continues in sin is going to continue to be deceived and become more and more deceived by sin as their heart becomes hardened. Hebrews 12.1 talks about how sin is going to entangle us. The Word of God tells us that there's not going to be any joy as we continue in sin. Proverbs 13.15 says the way of the transgressor is hard. Ezekiel 20.43, God says, look, there's going to be a, a time as you've continued to sin. There's going to be a time when you remember your ways. You're going to think about the ways you've been defiled. You shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils you've committed. You see, God's Word perfectly describes our sinful nature, our sinful condition, and offers us the hope for that sinful condition, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus' authority is real. Sin is real. Jesus' authority over sin is real. The second thing to think through is that Jesus' authority is unique. Jesus' authority over sin is unique. The Pharisees doubted this. Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, Mormons, all doubt. They all have high things to say about Jesus, but they all doubt that his authority is is unique. Mormons, for example, think that all of us can someday have the same stature of Jesus as we continue in the the Mormon faith is their their understanding. Uh, We live in a very pluralistic culture, a belief that, that there are many different roads in which one can travel, on which one can travel in order to to get to God. John Hick, for example, theologian, wrongly said, different religions are equals, though they may may each have a, a different emphasis. The Pharisees, for all their faults, were right about this. The forgiveness of sins is unique to, the ability to forgive sins is, is unique to God. Jesus' authority, we're going to see as we recognize that Jesus is God, is a unique authority. And someday, every person in here who recognizes that Jesus' authority over sin is unique is going to be engaged in worship of the Lamb. And because Jesus Christ has the authority to deal with sin, because we are sinners, we come to Jesus, he forgives us of our sins, someday we're going to be engaged in worship of him. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 says that they, where there's the scene in heaven where they sang a new song, saying to Jesus, to the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Jesus' authority over sin is unique. A third point of application we see here or the third point of application under where under under beware of challenging christ's authority in your heart we see that jesus's authority 
is absolute. Jesus' authority is absolute. I think this is where most of us would struggle. As this man lays before Jesus and is physically paralyzed, the same thing is true of him spiritually as well. Jesus doesn't say, look, you want me to heal you. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to give me a lap. Just walk outside here, do a lap around the building, and then we'll talk about healing you physically. He doesn't say, I'd like to see a little something from you. How about a little lift the toe, just a little bit. Just You can't do that? Can't do anything with you. This man physically can do nothing to, to heal himself physically. Nothing. What's true of him physically is true of him spiritually as well. Jesus, just as, he's, uh, just as he doesn't say, why don't you give me a lap around the building and then we'll talk about healing you from being paralyzed, he also doesn't say this. I'd like you to work out a plan by which I can forgive you. I want you to, to say a certain prayer. I want you to, to uh, go out and do some good things. I want you to, to do a little penance, and then we'll talk about forgiveness. He doesn't say, I'll forgive you a little bit now. That'll get you started. Come back to me in a year or two. We'll see how you're doing. Then we'll talk forgiveness. Jesus says, brother, friend, man, take heart. This sin under which you have been uh, oppressed for so long, it's taken care of. I forgive you. The Pharisees are furious. Only God can forgive that. Jesus is like, I know. Don't you get it? This man can do nothing to achieve God's forgiveness. He can do nothing to obtain God's righteousness. The same is true for you and me. So often it is such an incredibly hard truth to get through to people. There's nothing you bring God. There's nothing you bring God. There's nothing you bring God in order to merit his forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that God alone grants. There is nothing, nothing, nothing you bring to the table. There's no lap around the building you can do in order to begin to earn or deserve God's forgiveness of your sins. Coupled with that, there are some of you this morning, as I mentioned at the beginning of our time together, who have been weighed down with guilt over a sin for weeks, months, years, decades. Let me suggest to you that if you have repented of that sin and God has granted you that forgiveness, if you're doubting God and you're still struggling with that guilt, there's a possibility that you are doubting Jesus' authority over sin. Jesus has the authority to completely forgive sin. To doubt his forgiveness when he's promised his forgiveness in his word is to doubt, doubt Jesus' authority over sin. This man, paralyzed, struggling under the oppressive thoughts of these sins, Jesus assures him, man, your sins are forgiven. 
Jesus offers the same assurance to each person who turns to him in faith, recognizing that they are like that paralyzed man, completely helpless, unable to achieve God's righteousness on their own, dependent upon the righteousness of God. Last uh, thought here is this. We need to produce fruit that demonstrates our faith. Produce fruit that demonstrates your faith. It's interesting. Remember just a few chapters ago in in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist appears on the scene and he talks about repentance. And as he's talking about repentance, he tells uh, people to produce fruit that is in accordance with repentance. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 3, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The idea here is that God offers forgiveness completely, totally free. Jesus has the ability to to completely, totally forgive sins fully. The friends of this man who are paralyzed believe that, and they demonstrate that belief by what they're willing to do in order to bring their friend in front of Jesus. They believe in Jesus' ability, and so they're willing to tear a hole in a guy's roof to get their friend before him. Let me suggest to you that there are many ways that we can apply this, many ways that you and I can demonstrate the fruit that should be in our lives as we think about Jesus' forgiveness of our sins. Just think about this idea of forgiveness alone, though, just kind of one application here. If it's true that it's Jesus alone, God alone, who has the authority and the ability to forgive sins, what does that mean about you and I as others wrong us? Who have they ultimately wronged? Ultimately, they've wronged not just us, but, but God. And who among us has the authority to forgive sins? Only God. And if God is a gracious, forgiving God, what does that say about the people who are to be his people? That we are to be gracious and forgiving as well. Here in Luke, we're in this this section of Scripture in which we're seeing that that men and women have this terrible, debilitating disease. And and it's represented physically by leprosy, by a paralyzed man. What's true physically is true spiritually as well. We are completely unable to offer salvation to ourselves. All of us stand in the same condition as these people that we're encountering, in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is completely, totally, fully able to forgive sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, and we thank you for his authority over our our sin, and may we beseech beseech ourselves of of his mercy and grace. May you work within our hearts to, to seek him more fully. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.